0: Just a warning that this episode deals with adult themes of murder and of abortion, and the content may not be suitable for all ages, so listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, she not you? And here, they were guards and I was a combat. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would
1: just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there.
0: So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. He had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to or... I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see
1: it. Alright, well welcome to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women that called this place home. My name is Anthony and I'm sitting in the studio with brilliant sky. Stop
0: calling me that. Hi, also everyone. Also in a
1: star this morning.
0: <laughs> yeah, a co-worker called me star despite the fact that she, I have been working here with her since uh, May of last year. So yes. a year, a yeah. full year. She claims it's because there were stars on your shirt. And yes, so Yes, I do she, have, I have do. stars all over yes, my shirt. Yes, white, yeah. white stars. I get called
1: Andrew and Alexander a lot, mm-hmm. and I just roll with it. So... Mm-hmm.
0: Star it's not a bad thing. I told someone that your name was Anthony, and then immediately they called you Tony.
1: Good. I mean, at least they're in the right direction. It's not Alexander.
0: Alexander is... I think you should have... Did you You just rolled with it? You said. I did. Yeah, I you just, just like, had to be like, yep, that's my name. It, yeah, that's a good name. It's a classic regal name. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, we have gotten very off track already. We have a lot to discuss today. <laughs> Probably two hours. Uh, hopefully not. I'm going to do my best. So, yeah, we've got... I've got a big one, you've got kind of a smaller one, right? Yeah,
1: mine okay. is just like an easy, funny, Okay, it's not, I mean, it is prison time, but mm-hmm. the reason he's in here is, I don't know, I try to lighten the mood sure, based off yeah. of yours, so yep. you want to start off with yours? Yeah, and, okay.
0: we can start off with mine and we Let's can end on it. yours, yeah. Um, so today I am talking about Josie Kensler, Josie, um, number 565. Five. Um, she is probably one of the more interesting mm-hmm. stories because her crime, just like, Patrick that we talked about uh, last time her the crime is interesting but it really doesn't even start to touch what happens to her after she's mm-hmm. in prison Absolutely. so she came in on May 28 1897 and I don't want to say what her or her crime was so I'll talk about that she was here for a life sentence which gives you an idea of what mm-hmm. she did mm-hmm. so there's not really too much she was only 25 when she came in but I can talk a little bit more about that um, so sources I used, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, a ton of those on her, Ancestry.com and FamilySearch.com, both of those are very useful in determining her family and her heritage and things like that. Uh, of course, her inmate file, and then there is a woman by the name of Paula Huff Bryant who wrote this book. Kind of book, kind of just a narrative, basically yeah, kind of, of, of Josie's a life. life. Yeah, she. Or hopefully, it'll be. She a got book in contact soon. with you, correct? Mm, yeah. yeah. Overall, it is super well researched. I really actually had to do very little extra searching on yeah, my own because yeah. she she took all the trial transcripts, all mm-hmm. the newspaper articles. She did an excellent job. There's small errors here and there, um, typos and things like that. But you know, if it's just an original. A very first copy. You know, those are things that will be ironed out. So I want to say thank you so much to her if she's listening because yeah. your book was immensely helpful. So we'll just jump right in. So Josie was born Joan Josephine Melinda Lawrence mm. on October 8, 1871 in Uinta, Utah. Um, she was one of five kids. She had an older sister, an older brother and two younger sisters.
1: these big families
0: I know I mean this was (laughs) 1870s so that's pretty typical especially in Utah Um, Uinta is in northern Utah and it was a railroad town around the time of her birth but it's like very typical old west railroad town Mm -hmm. saloons tent towns billiard halls prostitution gambling all that good stuff. They were there. Um, they were a farming family. The kids didn't really get a lot of education. Some of them may have been able to read and write, but not too much higher than really like a third or fourth grade level. They moved to Malad, Idaho, somewhere between 1880 and 1900. And the reason that we don't know why like we don't have a time for that is because in the 1880 census they're in Uinta in the 1900 census they're in Idaho and in between is the 1890 census which uh, in 1921 there was a giant fire in Washington DC Mm. which burned the entirety almost the entirety of of that entire census so all those years are lost so we don't know if they were still in Utah in 1890 if they'd moved to Idaho by then that's a fun Um, fact no it's it it is so frustrating especially for these early inmates who sometimes the only way you can trace where they're at is because right. of these censuses and sometimes they're you know they're the thing you need to know the most is smack dab in that yeah. 1890 I wonder
1: how many like, yeah listeners who have been trying to do their ancestry mm-hmm. are like yeah I know yes, yes we I know this that. yeah it why? is the worst
0: It sucks. So in 1900, when they're in Idaho, the Lawrence family become acquainted with John Kensler. Mm -hmm. He owns a large ranch in Elmore County, which he gained through the Homestead Act, which for those of you who don't know, uh, was put out by Lincoln, basically gave away... Tons of, I think it was, it was started at 280 and ended up at 640, I yeah, think. Um, ton of so acreage. Big. Basically, all you had to do was live on the land for six years, and mm-hmm. then it was yours. Like, yeah. that was it. So he got this, this large ranch in Elmore County. The relationship between Kensler and the overall family isn't known. What we do know is that in 1886, Josie marries John, mm-hmm. and they settle in King Hill, which is about five miles outside of Glens Ferry, on his ranch. Josie was 14 years old oh, when say, she got married. What? John was 38 or 39, literally oh. the same age as her mother. I feel like this is going to cause some issues yep. in their future. Well, right? I just I don't like it, yeah. <laughs> just in general. I'm just I'm uncomfortable. Um, so just a little bit about John. He was born in Ohio around 1844. He served in the Civil War mm. um, in the Iowa Infantry Regiment. He was actually a prisoner of war as well. Wow. Um, He likely operated the King Hill Stagecoach Station beginning in the 1870s, so Mm -hmm. around when Josie was born. And then, again, with that Homestead Act, he started ranching. Josie and John had two children. uh, Myrtle, who was born in July 1887. Josie was only about 16 when she gave birth, which is just too young. And Albert John, who was born November 1891. Josie was about 20. Okay. So based on most accounts, the couple were likely fairly wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the mid-1890s, they were wealthy enough that they hired Alfred Rosencran's Friel. He was from Glens Ferry. They hired him to help out around the ranch. John and Alfred mostly uh, raised livestock. Alfred was Josie's age and kind of the only person within Miles, who is Josie's own age. Um, so they developed a friendship and then probably a, a romance. There's not a lot of details um, that are left to confirm that this is true, but um, as you'll find out, this is a rumor that spreads around the town pretty easily, pretty quickly. Yeah. So this, all of this romance, all of the age difference, everything comes to a head on October 17th 1896. Now, this is reported differently in some newspapers. Both Josie and Alfred give versions of events, and they're pretty similar to this. So Mm -hmm. I think we're all fairly certain this is what happened in the events leading up to this. So John and Alfred drive a team of horses to Glenn's Ferry. And while they're they're driving, John and, and Alfred start talking. And John gets really excited because mm-hmm. he says he's going to sell the ranch. And he, he thinks he can get a pretty good profit on it. So he's pretty excited about that. So supposedly, John and Alfred go into town. They get drunk on some whiskey. Um, they're drunk when they get home. Josie's coming in um, from milking some cows. She's got a bucket of, of milk in her hand. She says, listen, supper's ready. Just come inside. Oh, no. So they come in. Um, They're sitting down to dinner, and John tells Josie that he, quote, bargained to sell the land today. And Josie looks at him, and she says, I will not sign the deed. Wow. Um, Wait, he,
1: like, gambled? No, no, no. I think he he bargained. He, like, created a deal. Like, he made
0: a deal that said, like, you know, I'll take this much money for the land, and then it's yours. Oh, my god! I think. So she says, I will not sign the deed. She doesn't want to leave. And he says, that's the way you always thwart me, John says. And then he slaps her across the face. Ooh. And according to, I think it's according to Alfred, he, like, hit her pretty hard where she, like, hit the wall. Wow. Um, so she just, like, looks at him and she says, John, that is the last time that you'll strike me.
1: So this was not the first time, no, probably. No, wow. probably not.
0: Wow. So um, after dinner, John and Alfred go out to the porch and they drink more whiskey. Eventually, Josie persuades John to come to bed. And this is the last night that John Kinsler is seen alive. So... October 18th oh. 1896 the next day so there's there's a lot of um, intricacies that kind of go on and so if hopefully this all makes sense because I kind of cut some of the stuff out yeah so um, they've got neighbors the people on the neighboring ranch um, there's an irrigation ditch that they it kind of it splits into two mm-hmm. I think and so the gate has to be closed in order for one ditch to be full one irrigation ditch to be full that goes so one ditch goes through this kensler property the other goes through the canfield property okay so only one gate is ever open at a time to be so they kind of work out when they're going to irrigate their their crops and stuff like that so the canfields notice um they had shut their Gate. So all of the water should have been flowing on the mm-hmm. Kensler's land. And they notice on October 18th that their ditch is full of water and they think that's uh, kind of weird. So they start walking toward the gate and they find horses and the horses have their harnesses all tangled up in the wagon wheels. So they realize, they recognize that these are John's mm-hmm. horses. So uh, they untangle the horses and then they take them back to Josie and say, hey, these are John's horses. Do you know what they were doing out by our ditch? And she says, "Oh, well, he left last night. He must have left last night with the horses and gone into town. I don't—I haven't seen him since then." Oh, so he—they're like, "Well, uh, I mean, I don't know where he is. Do you want to mm-hmm. see if we can, you know, maybe find him?" So they go back. They're kind of looking around the spot where the wagon and the horses were found, where it was John's coat and pipe. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, there are no footprints leading anywhere from the wagon. Um, they walk down a little bit more. They find some footprints along a different part of the ditch. Mm-hmm. But again, it's nowhere near the wagon, so it's not like he hopped out and then kept walking. Yeah. Um, they're not really sure what that's about. They end up, the the two men, uh, the Canfield ends up coming upon Alfred, and he says the same story. Yeah, John left last night. He mm-hmm. took the horses. I haven't seen him since. So then he says, okay, well, I'll walk into Glens Ferry, We'll get a search party going. And while they're with the search party, Alfred keeps steering them towards the Snake River. He keeps saying he probably drowned. Let's go search the Snake River. And he really, they try to keep going back to the farm. And he keeps being like, I don't think anything happened over there. It's got to be the Snake River. Interesting. Um, so they end up, this obviously is kind of making people suspicious. Like, why Why don't you yeah. want us to check yeah, why this don't land?
1: Don't you care about this yeah, guy? Why right. aren't we searching? Yeah. Oh.
0: And. Especially since there are lots of rumors about Josie and about her reputation. People are starting to be like, did Alfred and Josie do this? They dredge the Snake River. They dynamite it in the hopes that by dynamiting it, his body will float to the surface, which I didn't know that was a plan um, that you could do. But obviously nothing comes of it. So it's learned that Alfred had bought a large amount of strychnine before John's death. So that immediately makes him and Josie number one suspects. They're immediately arrested um, for murder by poisoning. Any but, idea
1: why he would have purchased strip uh, I mean,
0: I don't know if... If it's true that they meant to kill him, yeah. then maybe they meant to do it by poisoning. Um, but what, what would be
1: in the reason to have it other than to poison somebody? Right. Is I it mean, is it for insecticide? It, it might
0: be. I wish I knew more about farming. farming. Okay. For someone who's lived in Idaho her whole life, I know very little I, about well, the uses yeah, obviously of Obviously, I'm asking you. I have no idea why why
1: you have strychnine other I than mean, to poison somebody. It's gotta, it's somebody. gotta oh. have
0: some. It, like people wouldn't sell it unless there was some. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's like a, sort of. yeah, it's gotta be an insecticide. I would imagine yeah, something like something if you dilute things. it then it it's less enough that if you eat the yeah. crops then you're fine mm. i don't know i should i should have looked that up i didn't even think about it i just I'm, was very i was very yeah. like in the lighter mindset still oh, where it's totally. like oh she bought flypaper and that's like normal right <laughs> like right oh but she bought a lot of it <laughs> so they are arrested for murder by poisoning they don't have a body so um They the the police are really confounded by this. So all of that happens in October. In late December, constables from Glens Ferry and from Soldier, Idaho, they decide they really have to get to the bottom of this. Mm. So they decide that they are going they they end up uh, the irrigation ditches aren't going to have any water in them in in late December, I would imagine. So they are going to prod like every inch of the Kensler irrigation ditch just because there were the footprints around and the wagon was there. And so they they take a six foot steel rod and the end has a barbed point on it. And so they go through and they basically just like poke it into the sides of the ditch and just comb every inch of it. Wow. Within 60 feet of Josie's front door, their prod goes into the dirt and sticks into something. And it's something that they haven't felt before and they pull it out and the barb has got a piece of cloth on the end of it so they dig they find the body of john wrapped in a quilt he's dressed only in his underwear his outer clothes are underneath his body which and i think it was like six feet five or six feet under the ground so this was something that took a bit of time to get him in there Wow. so here's what they find and this is a little graphic so there's a small hole above his right ear the left side of his skull is totally crushed. Oh. It showed it showed evidence of hard blows by heavy blunt instrument. The only bone intact in his face is his left jaw. Oh Everything else gosh. is completely smashed. Oh. They also find wrapped in this this uh, actually it's a it's at a different part of the property, but still not that far from either the front door or basically what was john's grave they find a canvas sheet covered in blood and brain matter Um, then they go inside the house they find a bullet hole in the wall covered by wallpaper and there was a hole actually in the headboard of the bed that they had carved to make it look like it was just like a knot in the wood like it was really covered up and I don't go into that a ton, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So, wow. understandably, the murder by poison is no longer uh, right. valid. They're now held on a new first-degree murder charge. So, um, April 29th, 1897, both Josie and Alfred plead not guilty. They have 30 witnesses come from Glens Ferry to Mountain Home. Mountain Home is where the trials are. Mm. So, I think it's like 30 miles, which back then is not easy these are huge trials newspapers from boise to salt lake to places in montana to even new york cover parts of this trial like mm-hmm. this is again this is like the original trial of the century in idaho before Lydas, as i right. even say yeah so alfred's trial starts on april 30th lots josie herself kind of comes as a witness and she said alfred was the one who would killed john but she had buried the bloody canvas because alfred had told her to uh-huh. Um, Myrtle Josie's daughter even gets up on the state's behalf and she just she basically just says that like she and her brother were sleeping in the same bed and they she heard a noise so she woke up and she went outside and her mom came was outside behind this haystack and she her mom came up and said what's the matter what are you doing and she was like I just heard a noise and she said it was sounded like a gunshot but she was sort of led by the lawyers to understand that that was that sound. And her mom said, okay, we'll go back to bed and like got her back to bed. And mm-hmm. then she said that she looked up out the window and saw her mom go behind the haystack again. Like oh. that was essentially her her testimony. But That's she interesting testified. That she took the stand. Yeah. And against she, her I think she mom. was, well, this, so this is just against Alfred. Oh. Yeah. Gotcha. So she would have been about nine or 10. Wow. Um, I think she was about nine when she did this. Wow. And then the senior deputy sheriff, R.A. Easley, said that Alfred told them that. He, he actually confessed in the jail that he didn't have anything to do with the murder. It was oh all gosh. Josie. Like, and Josie was the one who came up in the middle of the night and woke him up and said, like, I killed my husband, I need your help. And he was like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And she was like, you're going to help me or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Oh my um, <laughs> so the jury deliberates for six hours. Um, they, gave the, they give their verdict at 2.45 a.m. They find him guilty of murder in the first degree. And he is given the death penalty. So he is freaking out, mm-hmm. understandably. So Josie's trial begins May 7th, 1897. They actually use a lot of the same witnesses, including her own daughter. Again, they all give very similar testimony yeah. because this is basically one and the same, mm-hmm. same crime. Mrs. Canfield, who again is the neighbor who owns that other half of the irrigation ditch, she claims that Josie told her that she would be the sole owner of the Kensler Ranch in six months. But Josie says, like, I never said that. I don't know why she said I said that. I would never have ever said that. Mm-hmm. Alfred also supposedly said to another Canfield, I'll be the owner of the ranch and the woman in six months. She loves me. So there's that. That's, but again, this uh, testimony is only from the Canfields, who basically were the ones who sort of discovered that John was missing in the right. first place. Yeah. They're
1: lucky that, mm-hmm. you know, Helen and, and Josie didn't attack them. Right. Like, wow, right. that is...
0: Yeah, so again, both I think both te- both of those testimonies were said in both trials. Mm-hmm. So then the district attorney reads a letter that Josie had written to Alfred while Alfred was in jail. It included pet names like Darling and Pet, oh, and she signed it no. Baby. Oh, so obviously geez. this idea that they're lovers is like, hmm. I don't, I don't write that to my hired hands, but right. maybe I'm doing it wrong. Uh. I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, so... The jury ends up deliberating for three hours. They find her guilty of murder in the second degree. And people actually really criticize this because I think people really believe that Josie is much more guilty than Alfred yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And so they're saying, well, if Alfred got first degree, then why in the world is she getting second degree? And uh, like you have mentioned, a lot of it, I think, had to do with her gender. Yeah. The the lawyers beforehand said, please don't let the fact that she's a woman like change your verdict or change the penalty. Like she, if she did the same thing, she deserves the same sentence, but she got murder in the second degree instead. So during sentencing, Alfred's lawyer claims that there were serious flaws in both trials. Mm -hmm. They both pled. um, So they end up, I think it had something to do with like the fact that it was in Mountain Home, but technically they don't even know if the crime happened in Elmore County. So technically that wasn't a right place. So there were kind of these these excuses that they give. The judge ends up ruling in their favor, so they get new trials. Mm -hmm. Both, again, plead not guilty both were found guilty of murder in the second degree and given life in prison so alfred his sentence is changed his jury was out for 24 hours oh. trying to figure out if it was first or second degree i thought 4 yeah.
1: hours was was painful 24, 24 hours yeah that i mean condemning someone like this mm-hmm. like that it's it's hard it's right. that's part of the whole process and
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah. wow so yeah, so 24 hours, he gets murdered in the second degree, so he comes in for life. Wow. Both him and Josie come in for life. So Josie enters the prison on May twenty eighth, 1897. She was the third ever female inmate at the Idaho State Penitentiary. She's given a cell in the 1890 cell house. Um, she's given a little bit of extra stuff because she's a woman. She also is seven months pregnant when she comes into the prison. Hmm. So she's given, like, extra pillows and extra blankets, and the warden says, like, we've given her, you know, uh, really nice accommodation. so hopefully, you know, she's okay with that. So a matron, who, again, is just the warden's wife, is mm-hmm. hired to kind of attend her through her birth. So Josie gives birth to a baby girl who she names Gladys on July 15th, 1897. Wow. Um, she was the first baby born in prison, uh, oh, born, I guess not in yeah. prison, but like while her mom is incarcerated. Mm-hmm. She's not the last by any means, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and was it
1: was it like uh, in the 1890s cell house or I, did they take her to the hospital? It or? doesn't
0: say. Okay. I would assume, I would hope they would take her to the hospital, yeah. but there may have been given what comes next it's possible that it was actually in the prison Prison and the matron came in and and the prison physician came in Mm -hmm. so uh gladys is sent to live with josie's sister and is raised actually with myrtle who's her older sister by about 10 years so according to josie family lore gladys has a darker complexion than myrtle or albert which lends credence to the fact that gladys may be alfred's daughter rather than john yeah um so that's that's kind of that was included in this book that paula wrote wow. um which is not something you're not going to find uh, you know in, in records like that so mm-hmm. obviously is there's there an not,
1: official birth certificate or anything i'm um, like? not
0: that i found okay. um and i don't know if they didn't keep it because she was in prison right yeah. um because yeah. if they if it was just a you know the prison physician i don't mm-hmm. know if they have to abide by the same rules Absolutely. i don't the prison way it works in here, especially in these early years, I don't fully understand. Yeah, and
1: this is also, you know... Because they didn't even keep, like,
0: gender. Right. The gender of inmates until, like, the 1900s or something, right? So, yeah, yeah, so prison politics is is just a little bit different. So there wasn't one that I could find. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. but just not one that I could find. So while in prison, Josie works at the warden's house. Um, she does domestic chores for him and his family. She did, quote, fine needlework. Um, and I think that's mostly because there just wasn't much else for mm-hmm. her to do. Yeah. She made friends with some other female inmates, uh, especially Ida Lairdy. She was a 16-year-old who came in. She ended up serving with 12 other women during her time in the penitentiary. Now, here's here's the big thing that Josie is best known for, and this is what's going to take up most of our time, I think. So in 1902, there's a Boise attorney. His name is H.W. Dunton, and he starts to prepare Josie's pardon application, because he notes that she had really good behavior, and mostly that's really the reason why she should be released early. Mm-hmm. It stuns him, then, when Josie admits to him that she is three months pregnant, and that pregnancy, that she got pregnant while she was incarcerated.
1: Oh. Whoa! Oh, this yeah. is like yep. a Jerry Springer
0: episode. <laughs> wow. He wished there was so much drama. Yeah. So, Dunton goes to the prison physician. Uh, his name is Jesse K. Dubois. And he asks him to do a physical examination, of Josie, to make sure that this is true. So, Dubois visits her, but he says he didn't do a physical exam because he just simply doesn't believe that she's pregnant. Um, he keeps saying it's impossible for her to have been pregnant. She's lying the warden, CE Arnie, just straight up's like, She's lying, this couldn't have happened. She's not pregnant. Dubois keeps saying, I'm not gonna do a physical exam on her because it's just not possible. So Dunton, who's frustrated um, because he knows that he needs this information in order to try to get her a pardon, he goes over Dubois's head. He goes to the Attorney General, um, I think his name is Frank Martin. And he asks him to look into the matter. Almost every official refuses to give Josie a physical exam, again saying she's lying, it's not possible. So then her appeal to the Board of Pardons is rejected. So then word gets back to A.G. Martin that Josie has mysteriously gotten ill. So he confronts her about it and she says that the warden and the prison physician forced me to have an abortion. Oh. Um, And so they talk a little bit and he says, will you sign an affidavit if I get this down on paper and she says yes i will and so he does that she signs it hw dunton writes his own affidavit again claiming the same thing that the warden and the physician forced her to have an abortion so arrest warrants are issued for warden arnie and dr dubois for committing an abortion which is a felony in the fairly new state of idaho yeah Warden Arnie continues to go into the newspapers, keeps saying she's lying. This is not true. Um, it's impossible for her to get pregnant in the prison. We have very secure methods. Yeah. This is impossible.
1: Conjugal visits were never allowed Mm-mm. at this prison site. So, I mean, even, well, her and husband kind of is dead. Strange. Exactly.
0: And her lover is in prison with so her. So, there's no way, no way that there uh, is anyone to be giving her conjugal visits exactly. anyway. Exactly. So the main testimony against Arnie and Dubois comes from Charles D. Chin, who is a turnkey guard. He escorted Dr. Dubois to Josie's cell on the evening of July 22nd, 1902, which is the date that both he and Josie claim that this abortion happened. Oh, no. So a week before the visit, which is July 15th, incidentally, it was Gladys's fifth birthday. So Josie's been in for about five years. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dubois comes to visit Josie because she'd been feeling ill for several days. A few days later, she's called into the warden's office, so Chin escorts her to that visit, um, but he doesn't know what, what what conversation goes on in there. A few days after that, Chin, he took Josie a small pasteboard box that he said must have had medicine in it because sometimes inmates will get medicine and he has to take it to them. But he says he didn't see the contents of it and he, he knew there was writing on it, but he couldn't remember what it said. After he brings the medicine, Chin claims that Josie's illness got worse, and she starts complaining of back and side pains until until Dr. Dubois visits for a second time. And when he exits this time, or when he comes in this time, he's got a box of instruments. And so Chin sees these instruments. He doesn't know what they're for. Mm-hmm. But he says at this time, this is when the, the miscarriage happened. So Chin says he saw the birth himself. He says, quote, Mrs. Kensler told the doctor that she had a miscarriage. The doctor asked her where it was, and she told him on the bed. The doctor went to the bed and got it and laid it on the table and looked at it. And then there's a question, and uh, I think it's the the lawyer. He says, well, what did the doctor say? And Chin says, he said, it is all right. Everything is all right. Uh, What did the doctor do then? He wrapped it up and took it away with him. Was there any more conversation with the lady was the last question. He says, no, not that I know of. Oh. So- um, Oh, jeez. So then he also claims that, Chin also claims that he was part of a meeting where um, Warden Arnie was told of Josie's miscarriage. And this is what he says about this meeting. He says, he stated, he being Arnie stated mm-hmm. to me that if the scandal got out, it would kill him politically. And so Chin stuck by the story every time he was asked about it afterwards oh. that this is this is the series of events that went down. Mm-hmm. All officials claimed that Josie was in a, quote, delicate condition and that prisoner Alfred Roberts was responsible. So Alfred Roberts is a guy she wasn't associated with um, when she came in. Um, Alfred Roberts, number 770, he was in for passing a fictitious check that's kind of all the details they have on that they don't really say why they would have been in contact with one another mm. um as well i'll talk about here in a few minutes there were other inmates that she was much closer to yeah. um so and i don't know Thomas. why they're trying to peg it on him yeah. Yeah. but alfred alfred roberts is the original sort of scapegoat for this pregnancy
1: interesting what i wonder if he had a trustee job like yeah. taking trash out or right. cleaning the facility or something in there
0: right. i don't know yeah i i I don't know. He yeah. does look very similar to the rest of the men who were involved, and I. She I, had a type. Or she something. had. A, yeah. She certainly had a type. Yeah. Um. All right. So, when Josie gets on the stand during this trial, um, she completely contradicts her original affidavit. Oh. Affidavit. When she's asked if she was pregnant, she says not since I've been in the penitentiary, which is technically a lie in at least one way because she she was pregnant for two months while she was in prison so that kind of is like red flag number one so then she states that she'd been feeling poorly um, with muscular pains in her back inside Mm -hmm. um, which is what chin said and that dr dubois had visited he'd given her some pills but the the pills caused her to feel better after three or four days um, which again is in direct contradiction to Chin's statement because what chin said is that she was super sick the Mm -hmm. doctor came to visit her gave her medicine she got worse (laughs) And then after the miscarriage is when she got better. So she sort of throws out all of this stuff that Chin yeah, said. Yeah. So because of Josie's contradicting testimony, the case against Warden C.E. Arnie is just dismissed due to lack of evidence. But a day later, the same judge charged Dr. Dubois with car- causing an abortion on Josie. So he says, since you're the one who prescribed the medicine, you're the one who's responsible for this. So the, the new trial is postponed until November 1902. But before the trial there's a bombshell that's dropped there's a a convict who is in with josie his name is william howard thomas he's my favorite Uh, he's so good he says that during their their shared incarceration he and josie had become romantically involved with each other i don't know again i wish i understood how this was possible josie was apparently quite charismatic quite a flirt quite the looker for her Mm. day i wouldn't say she's a looker for our day but she i mean she seems she's got a like a a head of, like, curly... I imagine her hair's red, but I think it's yeah. brown. Unless she's got these dark hazel eyes, so yeah. she's probably charismatic and charming and all those things. So he says they're romantically involved, and he is planning to testify against Dubois because he knows some stuff. Yeah. Dubois actually never comes to trial. A county attorney deduced that Dubois himself had not administered the medicine. Josie's the one who took the medicine. Um, he had really only cared for Josie after the medicine made her sick. So he walks away a free man. So the case is closed for a few months until there's a new elected governor. His name is John T. Morrison. And he is hardly in office for like a month when he reopens this investigation. Now, again, there's a lot of complication to this. And I'm going to basically cover most of it with like one line because it kind of technically all interweaves. But it didn't feel like it had a lot to do with Josie. So it basically comes out during this investigation that William Howard Thomas, who officials knew Josie favored, was offered good time if he convinced Josie to sign a second affidavit, which contradicted her first. There's another convict who is his name was J.P. Carlin. He was a janitor in that that building. He states that one night after Josie's illness, he, quote, carried away a bucket with something covered in blood. Oh. So there's a the deputy warden his name is James Donnelly. He comes up to Carlin after supposedly after this event and he pressures him to change his story. And this is what Carlin says. He says, "Quote, I did not think it was any of his business, so I put him off by saying I knew very little or something like that." He, being Donnelly, replied, "Well, you don't want to know anything about it." So, according to Carlin, Donnelly is super covering something up. Yeah. So they put together this Idaho legislative committee to look into this. They, they're the one who are ones who are leading this investigation. So they get Josie up in front of this committee and she admits that it was actually a prison official that had gotten her pregnant.
1: No. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So a committee member asks, um, do you mind giving his name? And Josie said, I would rather not unless I have to. And she just starts crying, just completely breaks down. She further admits that he, whoever this official was, pestered her for sexual favors for two and a half years. Oh. And that once she gave in, he visited her cell often. Now, <sighs> I want to believe her because, mm-hmm. like, it would make sense. Prison officials in power. This woman who's all alone in this prison, right. clearly vulnerable. Clearly she has this reputation. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like he knows he can get away with it. Yeah, that
1: pressure. Is, yeah. Ugh.
0: And so I, I I, want to believe her, but at the same time, she is a little manipulative. Um, <sighs> She is charming. This could have happened with anyone because I think she had a little bit more free reign than she probably should have.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or, um, Or access to... The the men who are also uh-huh. celled in the same cell house right. that she is in. Just in a right. little separate section.
0: Well, and the fact that um that Howard Thomas, he once the, the the warden tells him that he'll get good time, he straight up goes to her cell, visits her in her cell. Yeah. Yeah. So, which means that probably isn't the first time that that's happened. Yes. So
1: And and you talk about him. After right, uh, yes, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. He we'll have to cover him because he's got a fascinating he story. He does, he absolutely actually, does. I believe left a mark in of Two House oh. WHT carved cool. into the side of it. So I'll talk about that yeah. in another
0: episode. So, but he he like he's on her side the whole time. He's willing to back her up, um, and he he is he also says like yes, it was a prison official. So I think I I think I believe her story because I think it's much more plausible for a prison official to have done it but it's what I'm saying yeah. is it's not implausible for her for this to have been a consensual thing. Yeah. So then when they ask her when this committee asks her why she won't give up the name of this person who did it, she just won't say why she won't say. And then they ask her if anything was done about the guard or the prison official. Um, she says she, cause she says, well, I did tell the warden that this happened and they said, well, what happened to him? And she replied, well, he was not discharged, which um, I hate that this is still happening in 2019. Right. This yeah. was hundred and um, many years ago. Cause yeah. I can't do math. Trine- um, 17. Yeah. Wow. And that's, it's like deeply Oof. disappointing. So supposedly, this is according to Josie, the conversation that Josie had had with the warden um, before the miscarriage happened, which Chin had said, like, I took her to the meeting. I don't know what was said in it. Um, She says it was a discussion with Arnie and with the deputy warden, Donnelly, that again says, if you sign the second affidavit and you get up on the stand and you contradict this first affidavit, then you'll definitely be pardoned. Do you want to guess if she got pardoned?
1: Did she? She did not. No. No,
0: no one is surprised by this. Nothing... Happens, pretty much. Like, um, she remains in prison. Arnie, he's not forced to resign because of this. It actually comes out during this sort of combined investigation that he starts, he basically has... He, takes convict labor and he uses it for his own personal gain out yes. at his brother's farm. Yeah, And so this whole thing, this is what I mean by, it's really kind of tangled up in this Josie investigation, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have a lot to do with Josie. Yeah. It has more to do with the fact that he was taking these convict laborers, taking them out to his brother's yeah. farm and making them work there yeah. all day long. And totally. Chin gives a lot of testimony about that as well. So he, he's resigned because of that, not necessarily because of Josie. Dubois is, again, he's a free man. He's totally allowed to continue practicing medicine. What did change was the need for a separate women's facility so by 1902 idaho is actually the only state without a separate women's ward without a matron to take care of the ladies and and ida laherty has a lot to do with this as well Um, but i can talk about her later The male convicts, they start quarrying rock. They build a wall around the warden's old house because they build this newer one. It's much bigger. It's much nicer. Mm. And so they end up kind of shacking the ladies up. There's not, I think, let's see, at least four other female inmates would have been transferred over to Mm. that new uh, building with Josie. So they all move in in 1905.
1: And that's just, it was just a tiny little shack that was the warden's house that they built the wall Mm -hmm. around. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it just looks like sort of one of those houses that you'd find on like any normal like Mm. rural farm like we've got pictures of it yeah. someone like sitting on the porch it's just a little little guy there yeah. i think there's like a shack out back behind it. I don't know what was in that shack, but yeah. like the picture that we have of the women's war with. or something. Yeah, yeah, that outhouse, they strung the laundry in between the house and the shack. Yeah. Um, so that's where they lived. And then, uh, as I talk about a little bit in the very first episode, uh, in 1920 is when that, that whole thing is built. But she just lives in the house because in December 1908, Josie's sentence is commuted. And then she's released a year later on December 1st, 1909. She served. 12 and a half years wow. at the Idaho State Penitentiary for that crime and um, having to live through that abortion. Wow. Geez.
1: And did, how do you know how long Al served, Al Friel?
0: Um, I don't... I should have looked that up. Also, I can't remember Sorry, now. That was a, no, no, no. Like, yeah. see, you're so good at thinking about that extra I'll stuff. Try. I literally am just like, Josie, I don't care about anyone yeah, else. Yeah. Um, Understandable. Yeah. yeah. So um, so she actually remains in Boise. The 19, 1910 census has her living in Boise, mm-hmm. With her daughters, uh, Myrtle and Gladys, Oh, so, so she gets reunited. to be yes, she gets yeah. to be a mom. This is probably the first time Gladys has ever seen her mom. Uh, she I wonder if they visited. I don't really know. Yeah, um, most, they don't talk about it. But gee, they didn't have yeah. visitors in the same way that prisoners get to have visitors today, yeah. especially in of those early days.
1: Masked them all together in the warden's office, mm-hmm. and, which, which if, is if not you've been very to the old big. pen, yeah, it is it a is tiny a small, room. Small, yeah. Small. yeah. Um, no privacy or anything yeah.
0: Else. So because I think her daughters had lived with again with her uh, her sister, mm-hmm. um, and then her sons, or her one son I should say was off. Uh, I don't know where he was. I couldn't find him in the census, but I think Paula might have, and I just skipped over it. Mm-hmm. I think he may have been on a farm with an uncle or oh, okay. or one of John's. That would make sense. Family.
1: Yeah, he's got a family.
0: Yeah. So uh, two years later, after she's released, under the name Joan Kensler, she marries a man named Andrew Ketchum in Boise. Now, he's older than her, not quite as much as John was, but he is still older. Apparently, they got married um, on a Thursday, and by the Sunday, she is visiting... William Howard Thomas in prison, oh. and she visits him so often that the warden basically has to pr- forbid <laughs> William from having yeah. any visitors. And
1: William Thomas is like this handsome bad boy mm-hmm. guy from Cornwall, is, England. Listen, he's like he is not British bad looking. <laughs> like, yeah. so it's yeah. <laughs> if yeah.
0: their mugshots, like again, they all they all look really similar, but he's definitely the best looking of right. of Alfred uh, Freel of Alfred Roberts. Okay, so. Andrew Ketchum ends up and Josie end up making in the newspaper again when he when Andrew is arrested for assault with a weapon with intent to commit murder, and this is against Albert, uh, Josie's son. Now, according uh, Albert claims that Andrew was physically violent toward his mother and Albert was just trying to protect her. So he sort of the, the um, that Andrew ends up pushing Albert out of the way, draws a gun on Albert, and Albert ends up I think falling or being pushed out of the way, and so. Luckily, uh, he is not shot. But, but basically, um, some testimony claims that if that hadn't happened, Albert would probably be dead. Mm-hmm. And Josie herself claims that it was just a familial misunderstanding and that a couple months later, the family are on all good terms again. However, <laughs> William is released from prison and Josie says, peace. Bye, I'm on. out. <laughs> I am out. So she leaves a note and this is what the note says. It says, quote, goodbye. I am going away. Be good to the children and let them have what is in the house. You don't need it, nor do I. Oh. Don't blame anyone for my going. I have took my gun, so don't worry over it. And then she signs it, Joan. And they, there's some theories right when she first disappears. Um, and one of the theories is that she ran away and committed suicide. And Andrew sort of knows exactly why. Mm-hmm. Like he's just like, nah, I think, I think she ran off with that that Thomas character. You know, he kind of he isn't really super concerned with catching her again, because I think he knows that their marriage isn't super great. And so he just sort of lets her go. So she ends up filing for divorce. She claims inhuman treatment and cruelty Mm -hmm. against him. They are divorced um, in November 1913. That same month, Josie and William Howard Thomas marry. And then their son, William Edward Thomas, is born on August 1st, 1914. She was 43. Wow. So there is what, 27 years between wow. her first birth and her her third?
1: That's incredible.
0: Or fourth, I should say, between her first and her last. And She's 43. Geez. That's like today in 2019. That's like. This is unsafe OB. to do this. Yeah. This
1: is what? This is 19... 1914. 14.
0: Yeah. So William ends up sadly dying on October 27th, 1918 in Salt Lake City as a result of the influenza pandemic or the Spanish flu following World War I. She then briefly lives with Albert and Edward, her two sons, in Nebraska before she settles in Bozeman, Montana, where she died on August 17th, 1938 at the age of 66. Um, She died of apoplexy or what is today called cerebral hemorrhage. So
1: great work. That guy. is Josie. That, that story, I've it's been wanting to condense it into something. Mm-hmm. So this was wonderful. Nicely I mean, done. I don't
0: know if I took two hours. That felt like a long time. Forty five minutes. Really? Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Yeah, that it would have uh, taken me two hours. I like yeah, and I just I like I said, I, I really feel like Josie I don't feel like is necessarily a bad character and maybe mm-hmm. it's because she basically accuses this this prison official of rape and I, no woman should ever, right. no person should ever have to and go like, through
1: that. Even with her husband, the abuse that mm-hmm. she was receiving, yes. I, she is responding to mm-hmm. these things. It's, yeah.
0: And uh, I didn't include uh, it in my outline, but she does say during one of the trials that that um, John Kensler was abusive to her. He was pretty drunk all the time. Yeah. And especially when he got drunk is when he got more abusive. And so it is understandable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just really feel for her. I think she's a really interesting character. She's very dimensional, multi multidimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, she isn't this like she killed her husband because she was a flirt. And right, I think yeah. that's sort of the reputation that she tends to get. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the case. I think she was doing what she felt she had to do to protect her family and it was a little unfortunate that she did it with this guy who was probably her lover but Mm -hmm. at the same time she wouldn't have been like physically strong enough on her own to be able to to dispose of the body and things like that so if alfred hadn't come along she probably would have just lived out her life
1: the abuse yeah yeah Yeah. i mean granted by the time this happened he
0: would have been in his 50s so Mm -hmm. she may not have had to wait too much longer but that's even twenty, you know, ten, twenty years is yeah. too long to have to live in an abusive relationship. And right. and like I said, this this abortion and and rape that she likely went through. I mean, the abortion I think is fairly certain is what happened. Yeah, because she does obviously she rescinds her first her second affidavit and mm-hmm. says like yes I was pregnant and and I think I think I hope much more that it was a consensual thing. But mm-hmm. and the abortion thing is is just not. Not okay, and unfortunately, um, you know this is a, an issue still. Right. In twenty nineteen, uh, we just had that Georgia bill pass, uh, and and Alabama I think is is trying to pass something very similar. And, and that's really difficult. Um, and, you know, we're not here to get into the politics right. of it. Right. But this is still an issue. It, mm-hmm. You know, How however many, again, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I know. <laughs> 117, 100, yeah, 117 years. Yeah, 117 years yeah. later, yeah, uh, this it's... is something that is still still an issue.
1: I think, for, I don't know if it'll. it's women. something that will go yeah, away. It's, no. Yeah,
0: This is probably one of the few laws that have consistently remained controversial.
1: Absolutely.
0: And um, mm-hmm. so... I, I could have also gotten into the the birth control methods and the you know abortion methods but I didn't feel that that was appropriate um, but Paula does yeah. actually so if that book is ever published she does a pretty pretty good job at, yeah. at talking about you know the different birth control methods and um, and how dangerous abortion was—the Comstock right. laws that come yeah. out and re- really regulate mm-hmm. um, birth control in women's bodies. Um, so she does a really nice job of that.
1: But, yeah, and but, we'll probably cover us one of these stories of someone who's in for abortion mm-hmm. and yeah. and where the individual dies right. and you know and or she, has really meta- yeah. terrible medical complications. And
0: she actually she served with the very first man who was arrested for performing an abortion. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember his name now. But again, Paula does a great job of, of getting digging into his story yeah, as well. Yeah. Great. And um, yeah, I mean, we've got we've got one, one woman who is in for abortion, Lena Pink Proud. Mm-hmm. And and her story is quite interesting. And then I'd love to do one on. Um, oh, goodness. What's his name? I did that bio on him for faces and I love him so much. What is his name?
1: I could see his I face. I can see his face yeah, also. Yeah. And
0: that like the girl they took her to have an abortion mm-hmm. cuz he probably got her pregnant and he was a real jerk about it and, yeah. and then she ended up dying and oh, I just had a flash of his name and now it's gone. Anyway, God, I hope I, I hope we do him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: If You come to the old pen, check mm-hmm. out our faces exhibit in the old trustee dorm. You'll see him there. He's a young, kind of dapper looking guy. If and, I say yeah.
0: his name in the middle of your story, it's cuz I just remembered it and I have to get it out. Yes. So.
1: Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. There you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group.
0: If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov donation. Any donation is appreciated and it will go toward improving the quality of this podcast and enabling us to continue to bring you the stories that we love and we hope that you love too.
1: Well, right. my story. All right, yes. let's lighten things up a bit. So, mine. I am covering Mr. Sam Stevens, A.K.A. Ab Mayer, A.K.A. Tom Robson, true name Harry Cohen, number four one five six. And this this is kind of hearkening back to the last episode with Patrick Murphy mm-hmm. about spiritualism, mm-hmm. and the turn of the century. I mean, we've always had this, mm-hmm. but. Uh, this is kind of the heyday of the clairvoyance mm, yes. and and the palm readers and uh, seances yes. and things like that.
0: Spiritualism is so fascinating to me. I, I love it. Yeah. I, and, like, the people, especially in, like, the Victorian era, were so obsessed with getting, like, because photographs were brand new. And so trying to get photographic evidence of right. fairies and of these little supernatural things. Like, oh, I just, I love
1: it. <laughs> well... Sam Stevens is a 45-year-old man who uses his special skills as a clairvoyant and a mystic to help empty the bank accounts of several vulnerable individuals (laughs) of southern Idaho in 1928 before skipping town. Uh, He considers himself a professor. Of this clairvoyant skill, he called himself Professor A. B.
0: Meyer. Okay, so is he like the professor in The Wizard of Oz, where where he says like Professor Marvel, where he's she's like, what about all the crown heads of Europe, and he's like, do you know any? Is this <laughs> yeah. the is this the kind of professor that he is? I think so. Yes.
1: he considers himself the world's greatest palmist and truth teller, oh, mastermind. Let's just just call him the
0: Wizard of Oz, I suppose. He is the Wizard,
1: yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, during this time, some of the things I pulled up from the Library of Congress. Uh, if you haven't, you should check out Library of Congress. They have uh, Chronicling America, digital newspapers mm-hmm. from across the country. Uh, They're for awesome. Decades, yep. yeah, centuries, awesome. yeah. So. Here's uh, one of my favorite ones that I pulled out from 1898. It's uh, Clairvoyant, Oren Stevens, the original boy, medium, and greatest clairvoyant on earth, lifts the veil of the future and peers into the great mysterious and reads your life from the cradle to the grave like an open book. Gives name, dates, locates persons, lost or stolen property, gives advice on all business transactions. Come and see his reference from The Businessmen in the City. He is visited daily by people of intelligence, and many of their successes are due to his spiritual advice. People are eating this up. Oh, of course. And, you know, of course, a lot of it comes with controversy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1906, this clever professor is—police is are is searching for him, and, and his name also, uh, Professor E.L. Mayer, which I don't know if, if it's R. Uh, Sam Stevens, a.k.a. A.B. Mayer— aka uh tom robson i don't know but uh this guy was being chased in san francisco in 1906 uh 1919 there's another mrs stevens which we will get to in a moment oh my um, goodness who leads this woman to marry a man and uh
0: oh boy yeah
1: and (laughs) don't
0: don't marry men (laughs) (laughs) based on a, a medium a
1: psychic telling you to so they the police ask her did you go to this medium to have her pick out a husband and she says, no, that's the mystery of all this, with what turned a faraway look in her clear eyes. When I met him and he wanted me to marry him, I couldn't help myself. So she marries this man, and he starts beating her and demanding oh, money from her.
0: And uh Wait, so, okay, sorry. So she goes to this mystic, and yes. she goes in for something else, yeah, whatever something else is. Yeah. So then... So but then this medium tells her oh you're going to marry this you man. You need to marry this man. Like, He's by Hawaiian. Name? Yes. He's Hawaiian. He's this Hawaiian man. where and is this actually at?
1: so this this is in the Washington Times in DC and uh basically this clairvoyant says you know you've got to marry this man and so she does it because oh the psychic knows. And this is kind of I don't know I wanted this to like represent this is how big these things got like people totally. ate every word of yeah. these individuals and so she marries this guy and she doesn't even know if he's actually hawaiian uh she just said uh oh. yeah how do you know that he's part kanaka he told me so and he speaks with hawaiian accent Oh no! so that was it. and oh, so no. the judge fortunately <laughs> allows him to to know the marriage oh, and, and get divorced. poor but, girl right um i mean i've got article after article of all these clairvoyants who are saying like I will find you your love and I will tell you this one here says I will also tell you the date of your marriage and this is from 1922. So I mean I mean to be fair I
0: would eat that up. <laughs> and a lot of people do. I mean there's still TV shows
1: you know Long Island Medium and mm, things like that. Uh, yeah And my you know my parents have gone to a psychic and, sure. and heard some pretty interesting things. I listened to the recording. I was like, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Hmm. But ah
0: yeah it's hard to believe
1: (laughs) i've i've heard some like cold cases where a psychic has said like it's you have to go to this remote spot and please search and search they aren't there and then you know some some hiker stumbles across the body in that location Mm. and you're like that's really bizarre how how is that even possible i think
0: psychics are just the serial killers themselves (laughs) (laughs) controversial just kidding (laughs) so if you're if you're a psychic please don't no, Tell yeah. Me the it's, date of my death or something. I,
1: I would love to, you know, experience and witness something that mm-hmm. was, like, legitimately. Right. But often, all too often, right. there are con men. And mm-hmm, Sam Stevens mm-hmm. is one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's born Harry Yonkel Cohen in New York in 1881.
0: Yonkel, Is that what you just said? Yes.
1: Uh, Y-A-N-C-L-E. Harry oh, okay. Y. Cohen. Okay. Yeah, I
0: don't know. I was thinking like Y-O-N-K-E-L or something. And oh, I was like, is that ethnic in some way? Like, is it, is he from, anyway, doesn't yeah. matter. Continue. Yeah. We just uh, already I, hung up on his name.
1: Yes. I, I tried to, you know, because of all of his different names, mm-hmm. it's, it was really mm-hmm. hard to track down where he is from. Really? I went through his police records and that was like the best
0: mm-hmm. way
1: to track down where he's been, where he yeah. went. Where, yeah. He, so he's got these four names. And these are aliases, so we we don't exactly know. I think that he married a woman named Angeline Coons in Alabama in August of 1915. And that is just because it was Harry, Uncle Cohen marrying Angeline Coons. And I know that he has a wife and a daughter. Could not find their names anywhere either. So, oh, I dug. I dug, and I dug on this guy. But uh, at some point in the early, mid-1920s, he has this daughter. His story kind of comes to Idaho about 1927, he lived in Pocatello for about a year and a half, and he opened up this psychic business. He is, you know, the, the champion, the world master of palmistry and all this stuff. And it seems like he came from Columbus, Georgia, and that's because he was arrested there July 27, 1927, under an investigation. But he's released. And there's no understanding. There's no write-up about what the investigation was. But I think we have an idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like most psychics and clairvoyants, he begins small. He just invites you in. Free seminar. We'll discuss something. I'll look at your poem. And uh, tell your future, maybe, and then we'll set up some dates, and maybe uh, you can start paying me for...
0: Listen, for folks, things. if there's free seminars, that's how cults start. <laughs> don't attend free seminars, especially like if there's teams. pizza. Yes. yes. <laughs> if there's pizza, normally go, but if it's a free seminar for yeah. anything, and there's pizza, <laughs> don't go.
1: Well, I took a little seminar here, and I have become Are you a master a of palmistry. <laughs> uh, so if I can look at your palms, yeah. Guy, Let's see. Okay.
0: I have a long... Um...
1: Yeah. All of these lifelines here. Uh, so if you look <laughs> look at these lines, you've got a lot of potential that has not been used to your advantage yet. You're an independent thinker. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, at times, you can be prone to doubting whether or not you've made the right choices in your life. Is that true? It is true. Wow. Uh, <laughs> there have been times when social anxiety has been a problem for you. Yeah. You can be excessively critical of yourself. Yeah. I'm also getting the sense that you're the type of person who places a great value on being liked and admired. I don't know. This this line right here, it's kind of hard to say, but that's you're, you're, sometimes... To be clear,
0: that. he's not pointing at one line in particular. He's literally waving his finger over my entire palm. <laughs> Shh,
1: I am a palmist, okay? <laughs> you aren't a perfect person, but you're, for the most part, you've made up for your weaknesses, <laughs> i
0: Actually, I disagree. I am a perfect person.
1: <laughs> well, that's not what your palm says, so... <laughs> Uh,
0: (laughs) you're right it's it's my palm at fault and not you (laughs) so
1: basically these are the types of things that they say just like the most generic very generic everybody you breathe oxygen (laughs) in copious amounts sometimes yeah what i can tell that you are physical and active uh you currently have a brace on your right wrist is that from playing soccer and (laughs)
0: Breaking it? Breaking it, it? yeah. How did you know that? I, you know. Is it because of my palm? (laughs) It
1: might be. (laughs) Is it because of the bruise on my wrist? It might be because of the bruise. (laughs) So this is how Sam kind of would begin it. And this is just how they often start. He starts bringing people in. And uh, during a seance with this woman named Agnes Schwab of McCammon, Idaho, he offers to reveal the location of this hoard of robbers gold at the price of $400. (laughs) <laughs> so, apparently, uh, there is this treasure taken from this Salt Lake-bound stagecoach on the way from Montana Goldfields in 1860. $40,000 worth of gold and jewelry were taken from this, this train in a holdup. Wow. This is true. I, I like, found this, mm-hmm. and it was, it was a true thing. And it, it was sometime between the 1860, 1865 that this occurred. And the loot has never been found, never been accounted never. for. So, wow. for $400, Mrs. Schwab... I will tell you exactly where it's at. So she pays it up. He draws up a map and gives it to her. Next client comes in. A man named Carl Cass. And uh, Carl owns a trucking business. Mm-hmm. And Sam says that uh, he could get Carl a contract with the Henry Ford Company mm. to guarantee a return of at least $2,000 for these investments of trucking these items and things. So... Steven says that he's a representative of the Ford company and claims that he had a million or more dollars to his
0: name. So, this isn't yeah. even about being clairvoyant. He's no, just straight up like, I can sell you, you these. A deal. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So, it's like he, for so each he's, person, yeah. he's
1: seeing what their weakness oh, is. Interesting. And, and yeah, so collecting the all his Yes,
0: classic money. con man. Yes.
1: Yeah. And then his last one, Miss H.D. Lyon Harris alleges that she gave him $250 because he promised that he could get her daughter into the movies. Oh never so believe that. <laughs> this does Hollywood not work. He said that he would get her a contract with this Hollywood producing company. And Where then was he skips this in town. Salem,
0: Oregon? And so, what year is this?
1: So this this is in Pocatello, Idaho. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is like nineteen twenty-seven through nineteen twenty-nine that he's doing this. Finally, he skips town mm-hmm. after collecting on this last two hundred and fifty dollars from Harris. And uh she goes to the police and says, you know, this man conned me out of two hundred and fifty dollars. I, I need to speak to him. You know, you need to find him and arrest mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. So police, you know, put out a APB, and they, they finally find him. He's caught in Salem, Oregon. That's where. Sorry, December I'm reading 21st. his notes
0: upside down. Oh, I shouldn't do that. That's December why I was 21st, like, Salem, Oregon.
1: 1928, he's okay. arrested okay. and lodged in the Pocatello County, in the okay. in the county jail there. Okay. And uh, after he's, he's arrested, 15 to 20 people come to the police and the sheriff's office and say, this man... Complaints ranging from twenty five dollars to twelve hundred dollars. whoa for all these things that he said would happen for them, that they would find all these riches and all these different things. And then a letter comes in from Wisconsin saying that he is a con man and they are looking for him there. So he ends up sitting in this jail for a year and he's being questioned. he goes in front of the court. he's finally convicted, two counts of obtaining money under false pretenses. And he gets a sentence of no less than five years, no more than 15 years on February 18, 1929. And uh, he doesn't enter the prison until January 5th, 1930, because they're trying to sort out all of these, Whoa. all these complaints and this connection with Wisconsin. Um, they never actually convict him in Wisconsin, Wisconsin, I, I can never see <laughs> that word, Wisconsin. They just drop charges because they're like, well, it's, like it's too, much. too, yeah.
0: So he, is he just in the Bannock County Jail then? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. they, they didn't so just like let year. him go. Yeah, okay. so
1: he finally arrives at the prison on January 5th, 1930, and... One of my favorite things on his intake papers, they they ask all these different questions. And one of them is, do you regard him as a menace to society, as a habitual criminal, or a man who has made a mistake? And so the prosecuting attorney Mm -hmm. writes in, in the past, he certainly has been a menace. What he will be in the future, I would not attempt to predict. (laughs) It just made me nice. laugh so hard that like totally,
0: like totally a... <laughs> tongue in cheek of like, I don't know what's happening in the future, but he does like exactly. That's exactly. so funny.
1: <laughs> so his Bertilian sheet shows that he's five three. He's just this short little guy. He's one hundred fifty nine oh, yeah. and a half pounds. Mm-hmm. His build very short and stout. Bridge. He's got a Roman Jewish bridge. His chin, double chin. Oh, age forty nine. I mean, this is kind of a.
0: He's just a he's just a <sighs> typical middle-aged man. Yes,
1: yeah. Um, nativity, New York City, so he's probably got an accent. Um, residence, Denver, Colorado. So his wife and daughter had oh, okay. moved to Denver okay. during his while he was in in jail. Occupation, fortune teller. Complexion, dark. So he's got this kind of classic fortune teller That's look. So funny. I imagine he probably had some sort of headdress and you know
0: a crystal ball. I,
1: probably,
0: probably. I mean
1: that's that's part of the equipment i feel like at this time so immediately after he arrives he starts applying for parole and the parole board is saying you know he hasn't served long enough i mean but he's his wife sends letters and she sends it to the governor of idaho to the prosecuting attorneys to the warden to the uh, parole board and she's talking about the heartache that his incarceration is causing them because she's sick the daughter's sick she's destitute they don't own a house, they're living in Denver, and there's not a lot of work. This is during the Great Depression, too. This is 1930, so, like, all of these things are, are falling on their family. Mm-hmm. She writes, uh, Also, has been learned that a strong political and personal grievance existed against him on account of his inability to satisfy a certain candidate who saw office at the time he was in Pocatello. So, he was a, a candidate. Somebody was running for office. Uh-huh. came to the psychic, and... Sam probably was like, "Oh yeah, you'll get elected. Oh, Just here, two hundred dollars in here, and shoot. we'll make sure the spirit world aligns with right, our world." Right. They did not get elected, mm. and I, I tried to figure out who exactly it was, but I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure who. Too many
0: politicians it. in Pocatello.
1: So, <laughs> his defense attorneys also write, and they, you know, because they're getting letters from from uh right. his wife as well. Uh, he writes he was charged and convicted of the crime of obtaining money under false pretenses. But when considered in light of the fact that he was a fortune teller and those who went to see him seeking his advice, assuring them of fabulous returns on their money, were as much to blame as he. It does not seem that the board may well consider favorably his petition. People possessed of ordinary intelligence. Who go to fortune tellers do so knowing that they will be told visionary tales of hidden treasure, fabulous wealth, and great power. And they likewise know that there is no foundation in fact for such a statement. And to punish the fortune teller alone beyond the suffering already endured by Mr. Stevens hardly seems just. So he's saying, like, I mean, what he did is, is bad, but the people going to
0: him are are par- partially to blame because they go- know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: they they should know. They also reveal that while Sam was in the Pocatello jail for a year he prevented a mass jailbreak. Oh, uh, he wasn't an informant. He was a rat. Oh, he don't be that. People. That's yes. not good. And not long after this uh letter arrives, a letter arrives from the county sheriff who also says, you know, you should probably release this guy. It's it's a petty crime mm-hmm. and uh also He was a rat, and uh, I have hesitated about mentioning this matter to you because of the effect it will have, if known, upon Stevens in the penitentiary. And I trust that for his protection alone, you will keep the matter confidential (laughs) among your membership. So he's serving time with the men he ratted out in that county jail while he sat there for a year. So they're saying, you should probably let this guy out. His case is brought up there July 1930, so, you know, seven months after he arrives. Mm -hmm. It's denied. So he gets to spend some more time in the prison. In September, he writes the board again, talking about how much of a heartache it is on his family and that his wife is consumptive, so she has tuberculosis. His daughter has rickets, which is weak and soft bones in children due to vitamin D deficiency. And then he has kidney and heart trouble from angina pectoris, which is basically uh, uh, when your heart muscle doesn't get enough blood, you Mm -hmm. have some blockages And so he felt that he didn't have long to live, and he's saying, you got to release me so I can put a roof over my my wife and my daughter's head. And he also ends with this this postscript, P.S., that says, uh, I'm told my wife and daughter are starving. So it's this really heartbreaking letter to read, which is not uncommon Mm -hmm. in inmate files. He applies for pardon again that October, 1930. Again, it's denied. In May and June of 1931, District Judge of Idaho's 5th District in Pocatello, he writes a letter on his behalf talking again about his wife and, mm-hmm. and daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and uh, he writes uh, to the parole board, Sam writes to the parole board, I'm done with my former vocation and never again intend to follow the same. My family have suffered every known pervasion. She is unable now to cope with her situation, lack of employment, sickness, I ask mercy at your hands, so I can go home and get a position and relieve their suffering. So this is the final thing. So the district judge writes on his behalf. He writes on his behalf. Finally, he's pardoned on July eleventh, nineteen thirty-one. Wow! But wow! He makes one more prediction. Well, a couple more here. <laughs> he wrote to the warden that Governor C. Ben Ross would be reelected and would reappoint a warden Thomas to the Uh-oh. post. And uh, sure enough, that worked out. Uh, But he wrote, uh, Eternal vigilance is the keynote to success in any enterprise. You will be assailed a few times, but will surmount all obstacles and be here a long time. One of those obstacles uh, was probably in December of 1932 when... Inmates R.E. Mounts and Looney Welling stole Warden Thomas's car and drove to California. So he predicted that, of course. Of course. He also said that he had predicted Governor Ross's victory, his first victory, and Lida's escape. And he didn't tell anyone because he was afraid to reveal it for fear. You would think me silly. Uh, <laughs> governor ross was. i don't think
0: they 32. would have thought <laughs> right. him silly if they had prevented right light his year-long escape <laughs> right. i don't think they would have been upset by that he probably would have gotten out yeah gotten like he probably well, wouldn't have even had to have been on parole or that's, anything that's the problem pardoned, with yeah. being
1: psychic though like no one is it's, gonna believe it's a so burden you just gotta keep it to yourself. <laughs> it's a burden yeah. so he's released he goes back to his family and uh what do you predict do you think he's
0: I mean, I'd like to think he did, but my guess is he did not
1: <sighs> he did not he, he did was arrested not <laughs> in Bismarck, North Dakota, under the name Harry Y. Cohen less than a year later on may twenty seventh nineteen thirty two for the charge of swindling ah uh. And then in August of 1939, he's arrested in Farrowfield, Iowa, for the charge of embezzlement and spent 25 days in the county jail.
0: 25 for embezzlement? Yes.
1: It didn't say the amount. That was the thing, yeah. Uh, August 1940, he's arrested in Oakland, California, for violation of Section 2141 of the Business and Professionals Code, which is practicing medicine without (gasps) a license. No. He's ordered to pay $250, given six months restitution, $136 in cost, He's fled, and the Board of Medical Examiners are searching for him. October 1941, a year later, he's arrested for fortune-telling in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. A year later, in February 1942, he's arrested for fortune-telling in Provo, Utah. In August 1942, <laughs> he's arrested in Spencer, Iowa, under investigation for his involvement in obtaining money under false pretenses in South Dakota. Whew. So this is a lifelong con game that this man held. And uh, if this is correct, I believe he dies 14th of August, 1943, and is buried in Colorado. Okay. but
0: Which would make sense if that's yeah, where his family is. Yeah, if
1: they remain there. So that is... Uh, a ghost in the background yeah, that we just know heard. If we
0: have a ghost in this building, <laughs> which people like to think that we do. Yes,
1: yeah, but maybe it was Sam Stevens <laughs> making his <laughs> presence <laughs> known from the other side.
0: Hi, hi Sam. Hi, Sam. Yes. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. I hear, yeah,
0: I hear once a con man, like always a con man. It's yes. it's an easy way to make a living, and it's hard to. I was just watching an old movie about a con man, and he like says that he goes, he went straight, but then he was like building dog tracks, and you know conning people out of my- anyway not not important robert taylor was in it it's oh. called uh john eager lana turner was also in it who was born in wallace idaho it all comes back wow yeah sorry good
1: good <laughs> bring it back yeah so that's that is sam stevens i wow. i thought it'd be an interesting one uh to get off of abortion mm-hmm. and, and murder <laughs> and uh,
0: also does anthony has a picture here of his his headstone and it says our daddy yes. on the, the headstone which is cute What's that symbol is that? Uh, I, I don't know what tell that you is. accurately I don't because I know that but... some so when my grandfather died in December and you could choose symbols like religious uh-huh. symbols that you could put on on the gravestone and that looks like I mean I don't know which one it looks like, but it looks like that could be one of them where it's just like a generic religious symbol. yeah, but I don't know if that's true. Yeah, it's it just looks kind like of a, a it flame. looks like a genie lamp with yeah. a flame in the middle, and then like two little things on the side.
1: I didn't want to say genie lamp, but that's that was kind it, of what I was. Saying. Listen,
0: I'm not saying that's what it is. Yes, yes. But I'm just yeah. my frame of reference is that's what it looks
1: like. It, it would kind of make sense. I with mean, his no
0: disrespect to any life. sort of religion, if yes. you know. Absolutely, that's yeah. just the only frame of reference I have for what that looks like.
1: And and the date on this for his birth year, March fourth, eighteen eighty two. That's you know, that's a year off from what the prisons records Mm, said. mm -hmm. He was born in eighteen eighty one. But of course a lot of these guys, they're coming under aliases. They're not gonna totally. If they'll they'll they might tell you one truth but fudge the rest so that you know, until the FBI gets their Mm -hmm. fingerprints and, Mm -hmm. and checks them out in the database our administrators wouldn't know right. until then. Right. And then they'd be like, oh, also Tom Robson wanted in Wisconsin. And, right. Um
0: <laughs> That's what's so fun about being in here or like being researchers in here is that you, you know, you get these records. Like when I was talking about mm-hmm. Grace Elizabeth Scott last time, how she was like, I was born in 1897," And I was like, that's weird like the census record says 1893 and then i found out that her mother died in 1895 so it's impossible for you to have been born in 1897 and and yeah but that's like you know what prison officials gonna be like you're lying right yeah no one but that's what's fun for us as researchers is is finding these discrepancies and figuring out like what's true and what's not yeah
1: yeah, and then like in his case, sometimes never knowing the right, truth. Right, like, exactly. It
0: listen, I, to the grave. I next week I will do an inmate who I have no idea who she is, what she is. Yeah, we'll we'll do Mary Holmes next week. Mary Holmes, fascinating. Oh, okay, I was gonna do Athalia Bybee, but she. I feel like we should do her and her husband together. So, yeah.
1: I think I'm gonna look for one with a really cool daring escape.
0: Ooh, that would be that's fun. What I'll look yeah, for. yeah. Yeah. Cool. cool. Well, nice job, Anthony. Yeah, I your too, research guy. is so thorough, I appreciate it.
1: Oh pff, yours is too. Thank you for writing the book literally on the two hundred and seventeen <laughs> women that serve time here. I I learn every week I learn. Like I, I've of course studied Josie quite a bit mm-hmm. in the trial in nineteen oh two and and Arnie and his connection. Yeah. Like but you know, I, I haven't gone in this depth and I am gonna steal this sheet that you have okay. because that's incredible. I'm so glad that that's been done.
0: And, and again, I wish I could take credit, but really Paula Huff Bryant did oh, most of it. So yeah, yeah. thank you. Again, oh. if she's listening, I can't thank you enough because yeah. you did an excellent job at yeah. researching and like so deep.
1: Another interesting thing, there's no Warden's Biennial Report in 1902. That's one of our oh, missing ones. And I think it has to do with the trial and everything that was oh, going that makes on. Sense. If you happen to have Gordon's Bionier reports in your <laughs> attic right now and you're listening to this, go grab them. And if you have a 1902, I am dying to look at it because we have these gaps yeah. of information. And that's the only place that I think we're going to end up finding these things. Yeah. Cool. Yay. Well, Sky, do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you next week. Yes.